Welcome back, NodPod. I just recorded probably my favorite interview possibly that I've ever done since I've been doing the show. I just interviewed Moira Kuchaba, and this is from her website. This is her statement about herself, which pretty much sums it up. I'm an alcoholic, addict, bulimic, and college dropout turned self-made millionaire and expert in helping people find their extraordinary. And she, as the statement says, she was an alcoholic, basically like catatonic in late stages alcoholism at the age of 20, got sober at the age of 20, and opened a fitness studio, became the top producing Beachbody coach, is, as she said, millionaire, an author. And it was so inspiring to talk to her because she, another one, like myself, like Khalil, and so many of the people that I try to get on the show, believes that that gene that makes us an alcoholic addict is present and available to be leveraged into making us incredibly successful in other avenues and areas as well. And I so believe that. I think it is such a superpower. You guys hear me say this all the time. We are the lucky ones. And to hear her talk about that and and why that is and bring her like unique perspective in on this conversation that I have with you guys all of the time was so enlightening and so empowering. She has a journal that I'm literally going to order today. It's called Proof of Life, which just is like such a cool name. And it's a method for outlining daily what we have to work on, what we're proud of, and it's a way to build confidence and keep our life regenerative. So recognize our successes, build on those. Recognize our successes, build on those. There are nuggets of like wisdom and knowledge just throughout this episode. You're literally probably going to write some stuff down, like some of the things that she says. I'm just like every single moment I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And for me too, and sometimes this happens with the podcast. It's really cool. Like it's so divine sometimes how you guys have heard me say for the past couple of episodes that I've been feeling like sad about the studio and like, did I do the right thing? It was such a cool brand. Was that my like, should I have been like Khalil, right? Where he's got this, these 10 locations and I'm like, fuck, it was cybered supposed to be that for me. But you know, but like, you know, I sold it and talking to her, she shared about a business. She also had for three years, a great brand. And it wasn't one of these standout things that she's known for, but it was like instrumental in her journey and she wouldn't change a moment of it. And I feel like it was like exactly what I needed to hear at the moment. And I think it's so cool when we are plugged in and in seek of and in pursuit of personal development and things that are going to make us feel better and think smarter and live a more aligned life that we hear what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And the, you know, not sound cliche, cliche, but the messengers like arrive when we're looking and we're tapped into that community here together as the nod pod. So you guys will love this episode. Moira Kuchaba on Instagram, her website. You're going to want to follow this woman. You might even want to order her journal. I am. Let me know if you do. And as always, NodPod, please let me know what you think of this episode. And we'll see you next week. Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. I'm so excited to chat with you, Moira. I have spent the past several days in your head, <laughs> scrolling your social media. In fact, I felt funny because last night 
I was going back and watching a bunch of your reels. Yeah. And I was like, she's going to be like, who is this stalker? Because no, I watched, no, I no, liked, no. Like, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> I liked like 10 of your reels in a, in a row. And I was like, this is great. Why isn't your vision clear enough? It needs to be juicier. Yes. This is <laughs> yes. great. This Every single thing you posted. So guys, please go fire, follow Myra Kuchaba on Instagram. It's like daily lessons for life. Oh, daily insight. So you have experienced massive success in your life, right? As an entrepreneur. And massive failure. <laughs> as a speaker, as uh, the top beach body fitness coach. And at 20 years old, you were nearly catatonic in yes, late stages. I pretty much was catatonic, yes. In late stages, alcoholism. And now here you are with all of this success. And now those those two things sound like they are wildly far apart. Yeah. But one of the main premise of, of my platform and my message is that those two things are not that far apart and that they can actually be related. And I've heard you say something that I think is so interesting and, and really explains this phenomena really well, which is that you don't believe that you were born an alcoholic, but you do believe that you were born with the gene, a yeah. gene yeah. that makes us as alcoholic addicts, obsessive and yes. driven. Yes. And you've just leveraged it for success in your life. So can we start with just talking about yes. that statement and what you yeah. mean by that? Yeah. I mean, it took me decades, right, to arrive at this, but it's really what set me free. And I'm like, whoa, why did I have to come to this on my own? Because I absolutely believe it's truth. and why is this not being talked about more in the world of addiction, right? Like why aren't the best doctors that are researching alcoholism and addiction, why are we not talking about this? And, and this came to be because if you are an addict or an alcoholic, you have to be rooted in that identity to the depths of your soul, right? Like that is something that we have to fully identify and embrace in order to live. Like we're talking life or death. If I forget this thing, if I forget I'm an alcoholic, I am going to die. My sister forgot she was an alcoholic and she died at 35, right? So when I was first challenged a little bit on this, like how, how is that identity serving you? And I'm like, it's serving me. Like, don't go there, right? Like, I got angry. I got defensive. Like, do, do you, you don't dare challenge that one thing about me because it is the only reason I'm alive. And it's the only reason I'm going to continue to be a mother to my children, right? Like, it's everything. I thought about it. And I thought about, and the work, a lot of the work that I do with mindset is, you know, if you're trying to change a belief, you need to look for proof that something else is possible, Right. And so I started to really like research just organically in my world. Maybe there's a different truth here. And I will never forget, so divinely happened, I believe. I went out to brunch like literally right in this time when I started thinking about this, obsessively thinking about it, right? Because we do everything obsessively. <laughs> and I went out to brunch with a girlfriend of mine and her husband is an ultra marathon runner. And, you know, runs a hundred miles at a time. Crazy, 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 right? It's crazy. And we were sitting at brunch and I am never, I am never hesitant to just ask people questions and like, you know, throw it on the table. But I said, Hey, 
can Lee, can I ask you a question? And he's like, of course, what's up? And I said, does alcoholism, does addiction run in your family? And I'm friends with the wife, right? And he kind of was like <laughs> taking it back like, whoa, that's not what I thought you were going to ask me. But he hesitates and he kind of looks me in the eye and he's like, well, yeah, but what? Like, what? Why, do you, why are you asking me that? And I'm in my own mind going like, okay, totally makes sense. Like my theory is, is starting to add up, right? And I look at even people in my family that have become obsessed with their profession and therefore wildly like over the top successful, like, you know, the top 0.00001% do this in that profession. And, you know, somebody in my family is doing that. And this started probably eight or nine years ago, kind of my own personal research. But even just a few months back, I was sitting there talking to somebody in my family because we happened to be visiting. And I started to ask them this wildly successful human in my family. I'm not going to name names. I started to ask them about their drinking. I was like, well, did you party? Like, did you party back in high school? Like, what did that look like? You know, we grew up in the same town. It was a party town. And he's like, oh, did I, did I party? And I'm like, but you've always kind of been this like, academic. And I didn't know. And he was like, oh, it was like out of control. And I'm like, mm, yeah. Every single time I question this new belief, this new philosophy that I have come up with, it proves itself true time and time and time and time again. I believe that a lot of professional athletes are probably born with the same gene right? They totally. just didn't pick up a drug. They didn't pick up a drink. But they, we have this uncanny ability to freaking put blinders on and just go obsessively, but also just lock on at a different level. And totally. when I finally realized that I wasn't born an alcoholic, because that is the identity. I mean, I'm 20-some years sober. That is the identity that I nurtured for decades, because I had to, right? But when I started to go, there's also a lot of shame attached to that. There's also a lot of scarlet letter, right? There, there is a part of that identity that absolutely doesn't serve me. And so when I started to realize maybe, because I, I 1000% hands down, like there is no question about it. I am genetically different and not, and for the, most of my life, I thought that was genetically worse, right? Like right, I am genetically yeah. different. I mean, literally just on Saturday, we were at a yoga festival and everybody got an iced coffee and th 30 seconds in, I'm like, oh God, who's the addict in the group? I had finished mine in the first 30 seconds, right? Like, and everyone <laughs> else had just taken a sip. Like <laughs> everything I do is just not normal, right? <laughs> yeah. But I started to realize that I was born with, and I, I don't know what the word is, right? At the time when I was trying to figure this out, I was like, it's, it's like driven. It's obsessive. It's not obsessive compulsive disorder. It's driven and obsessive. And, you know, I don't want a little, I want a lot of everything, right? Like yeah. give, give me, <laughs> I'm not going to eat a bite of chocolate cake. I'm going to eat the chocolate cake. Totally. And, and I can't turn that off. And it is something that's been in me since years before I ever took my first drink. And so I started to realize that this thing that I have, this way that I was genetically born into the world could actually be my superpower, yes. could actually be God's greatest gift if I chose to channel it the right way. And it is a 
tricky course, right? Because even with work, you know, and and what I've, I'm kind of infamous for saying is the thing that made me an alcoholic is the thing that allowed me to build a seven-figure business quickly. But you got to be careful there, right? Because then work gets out of control, your relationships get out of balance. So it's always this dance of kind of reining it in and balancing it out. But for the population of addicts and alcoholics to realize, to get the message that the thing you think destroyed you, the thing you think almost killed you is actually so freaking awesome. You just got to use it the right way. I love this. Yes. I love everything you're saying. This is totally what I believe also. And this is how I got to a place, not of shame, but gratitude. And it's just, and I love what you just said. Genetically different doesn't mean genetically worse. And in fact, it can mean genetically better, which I so agree with. And then you've also said that you have leveraged the tools of recovery in business as well. And you said something that I've actually even been sharing in my classes this week, which is that at any given moment, you are moving towards a drink, towards sobriety or away from sobriety. But listen, that can be applied to like with my podcast at any given moment, I am moving towards success with content creation and my platform or away from it, depending on what I'm doing. What other tools of recovery would you say you've been able to leverage for success in business and in life? Gosh, I think it all applies, right? Like I remember having very kind of wildly quick success in the coaching world. And there was somebody that was like in my business that was in recovery as well. And she said, you know, she just kind of said this one day and I was like, I never thought about it that way. She was like, you have kind of an unfair advantage. And I was like, no, I don't. Like, cause I am such a big believer. And like, when I stepped into the coaching world, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I didn't know how to create social media. I don't, I didn't know how to, you know, launch a podcast. I didn't know how to write a book. Like I knew nothing. I do not have any advantage. And if I can do it, you can do it. Like that's always my message. But what she meant because she knows recovery is you have been, Moira, you've been living with this skill set that serves everybody. You know, I remember my mom saying, wouldn't the world be a better place if everybody lived by the 12 steps? And it's a way of approaching life. So life includes your business, it includes your recovery, it includes your family, your it includes everything, it includes money, right? Everything. So I have this approach. I think one of the biggest pillars of AA, and I know we'll say recovery, the 12 steps is, you know, kind of taking ownership Like, I got to own my piece in this. I can't control what they're doing. Therefore, you're not reacting in business, right? You're not looking for a handout. You're not looking for other people. It's like, I got to take total ownership. I've got to keep my side of the street clean. I have no control. You know, I remember when Rachel Hollis started saying, other people's opinion isn't any of your business. And everyone's like, whoa, that's so brilliant. I'm like, oh, we've been saying that for decades. You know, like, yeah, totally. You know, My sponsor says that to me yeah, all the time. That's yeah. like an old school AA cliche. Right, you know? right, <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, and business is a spiritual game. You know, business is a spiritual game. And so recovery is based in spirituality. And so when you have all of these kind of concepts and, and one of the biggest ones, and I was actually talking about this yesterday on a podcast When I stepped into the world of coaching, it was very automatic for me to 
look for the people that were ahead on the path, that had found success, that were modeling a business and a a persona, meaning like their values, right? Like I always think of Jesse Itzler. Like I adore that man and, and what he stands for and his belief system and how he approaches business. So I would look at these people that were ahead on the path that had, and this is recovery, they had what I wanted, right? They were where I wanted to go. And I would seek community with them, relationship with them, getting getting in the same room with them. And I would ask a million questions. You know, it's one of the things that allowed me to get sober is the same thing that has allowed me to be very successful in business because I'm like, I got to get with the people that are finding success. I got to just ask them a thousand questions. And people are people. You know, a lot of people are willing to have a conversation, invest time into people that are also willing to do the work. I've always been willing to do the work, right? I'm always taking massive action. And, you know, I'm not, you know, a victim because going back to the, the kind of the tenets of recovery, I'm not a victim. You know, I'm, I'm taking responsibility. I'm taking ownership. I'm failing forward. I'm doing all of those things. And so I think that was a huge piece of it because I can remember coming into coaching and I was like, whoa, this is just like when I got sober 20 years ago. Like find the people that are doing the things well and connect with them right? And step away from the people that are complaining, the people that are bitching, the people that are have a negative mindset, a fixed mindset, and like steer clear of that because that's only going to drag me down. I think recovery is what gave me the gift of who you surround yourself with, you absolutely become. 100%. Well, and that's another thing I've heard you say. That's a very empowering way, what you just said, to describe in recovery, we talk about the surrender which can sound, it's got this like connotation that's not necessarily positive, but I've, again, I've heard you say that surrender is the willingness to take suggestions from other people. And again, in the recovery paradigm, we think like, oh, that's because like I'm a loser. So I have to get a sponsor and have them tell me what to do. But my sponsor is brilliant and Zen and like all these things I want to be. And so if we look at sponsorship as like, mentorship with someone that's more successful, like you would in business. Like if I got connected with the top GM at cycle bar, I wouldn't see that as like a bad thing. Right, That's a great thing to be mentored. And so I think that that framing surrender in that context, it's being willing to take suggestions from someone that's more successful than you. It's a great way to look at sponsorship. And then again, like you said, you know, take that willingness with us into our lives. In fact, I've been thinking like, since I heard you say that, I do need to connect a little bit more with some other GMs in my industry because I want to grow, you know, I want to grow this business. I want to grow the studio. And I'm like, I have done that before. Yeah. So I love that so much. I just want to stay on that for a second, that nugget you pulled out, because I think hitting rock bottom has always given me the gift of humility. You know what I mean? It's like in, in the business world, It's probably the thing that people come up to me and say the most, and I'm always perplexed. They're like, you're so humble. And I'm like, I don't know what that really means because I'm just me. Like, I I don't know any other way to be. I just really don't. But I think when I really think about that and I get in the business world and I'm like, oh, and I see others with huge egos, I'm like, oh, now I see the difference. Like, I know what you're talking about. I think it's because I am this far away from death. I am this far away from a relapse. I am this far away from a drink, you know, and that's something I'll never forget. And so good God, I am no better than anyone, you know, and 
it's kept my ego in check, which keeps me really freaking teachable, right? Really, really teachable. And the other definition I heard probably 15 years ago of surrender, and I remember this stuck with me because at the time I think I was thinking like surrender, like that feels like defeat. And they were like, ask a soldier in a war what they do when they get the call, you know, enemies are like, you know, they're at the lines, they're fighting in battle, you know, one side against the other. And somebody gets a call, one side gets the call and says, game over, we're surrendering, we're surrendering to them. And they said, what happens next is they lie down their weapon and they sit and they wait for direction. And I was like, whoa. And really, in life, it's laying down your weapon and looking for direction to join the winning side, right? Yeah. And that was huge to me. It's not a surrender that we failed. And that's a whole nother topic because I don't, re- I really don't believe there's anything, there's such thing as failure, but it's just giving up your way, your will. I mean, you know, we, we learn in recovery that like my best thinking got me here. Like my best thinking got me to rock bottom and destroyed my life. So therefore maybe I shouldn't rely on my thinking anymore, you know? And so we do, we kind of give over to somebody else But when we're new in business or we're new to podcasting or we're new to being an author, it's like, I don't, I don't know anything. So I have no choice but to listen, but to learn, but to grow, but to seek wisdom and counsel from other people. And that is, I think, something that people really don't do. I think they get stuck in their own overthinking and they're just caught in this tailspin of overthinking and overthinking and overthinking and overthinking. And we have this, we have 60,000 thoughts a day. 59,999 of them we thought yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. So having a conversation with yourself isn't going to get you very far, right? We have to be privy to different ideas, different strategies, different thoughts, different philosophies, different ways to go about it because our brain isn't going to come up with that. We're only going to get that from other people. I think it was Einstein who said the same thought that created the problem isn't going to undo the problem. So, you know, exact same idea. And you guys can check me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was Einstein. (laughs) So let's talk about how you got to catatonic at 20. So what does your life look like? How and when and why do you start? Drinking was your primary. Yeah. Yeah, there were definitely drugs in there, but um, alcohol was definitely my drug of choice. And there's a little bit of a story there. So, you know, I was the youngest of six Irish Catholic kids. So definitely had alcoholism in my family, but it was never around me. It was like my uncle that lived far away. I never grew up. I grew up in as normal of a family as you can get. I mean, my sister was manic depressive bipolar. So that was definitely kind of a loose cannon to deal with growing up. But even that, I'm like... (laughs) probably as normal as you can get in this world. Like we've all got our stuff, right? But I had parents that were married together. I had a great loving family. I was, like I said, born with this like foot on the gas. So I was the best academically. I was the best at every sport that I participated in. I was, you know, took piano and I was good at that. I was just good at everything. And I don't say that from an egotistical standpoint. I just say that as that was, that's like the facts. I was, you know, the all-star this, the you know, gifted and talented student, all that stuff. And that started to become my identity, right? Not because my parents ever put that on me because they were really good to check my ego. Like they just really kept that in check, but society rewards that, right? 
it feels really freaking good to be on every all-star team and have your name in the newspaper and, you know, take the SATs in seventh grade. Like that just <laughs> automatically gets rewarded by, by right. making you feel like now this is who I am. I'm this athlete. I'm this academic. I'm this whatever. And it was self-imposed pressure coupled with my personality that the first time I took a drink at 14 was the first time I felt like I took a deep breath in my life. Like it was the first time I was just able to stop, like stop the insanity. The crazy thing is like the alcoholic brain was there before I took a drink and the insanity of addiction is the thing that's going to kill us is the thing that in the beginning allows us to just <sighs> relax for a second. Right. And we don't have the skills to do that. I certainly didn't have the skills. The world's changed a lot, thank God. But I didn't have any coping mechanisms for my brain. And I was just like, oh, I need that again as soon as humanly possible. I need that again. I need that again. So I think when I started drinking, I started drinking then, you know, I was ninth grade, high school, public school, you know, all that. So it was like every weekend, you know, it's just what everybody did in my super small town. And and by the time I was a senior in high school, you know, it was bad. It was drinking during the week, drinking during the day. You know, I had thrown away all the scholarships, but I had rationalized my way out of it. You know, like, I don't want to play sports in college, mom. I want to have a college experience. Like, you are you think you're making these really thought-through decisions when it's really your disease owning your life, right? Totally. And so I ended up going to college in my hometown. And I mean, that's where it just kind of went off the cliff of now it's not just daily drinking, but it's literally 24 hours a day. If I'm awake, I'm using. And, you know, just blackouts for days, not going to classes for weeks. I don't even know if it was my sophomore or junior year. I mean, that's how crazy I look back on that. Like, I, it's just all a blur. And my parents were kind of like, whoa. They had gone through Al-Anon and a lot of stuff with my sister at that point. She was five years older. And they were like, holy shit, you have a problem too. Like, we've got another daughter that has this. But they were in Al-Anon at that point. So they they kind of knew not to enable me. They also knew that I, I mean, I'm so ridiculously independent that I just wouldn't have had that dynamic with them. And so I ran away to California, from Maryland to California, you know. Okay. What was your initial reason for going to California? What was your I was just trying to escape escape the heat that was coming down on me. Like my parents at that point were like, you need help. They sent me to my first recovery meeting. It was in my Catholic school basement, like in my cafeteria that I sat in as a child for nine years, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was a super small town. So I go to my grade school, Catholic school, and I'm like, holy hell, my life is like, how did I end up here at 20? Right. You know, right. and I felt like my life was over. <laughs> they probably weren't that old, but at the time, but I, they were older, you know, it wasn't recovery right. like it is in a big city. So I was like probably the youngest by 30 years, you know? So there wasn't a young people's community there for me. Recovery seemed impossible and I wanted, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. So I got on a plane and flew out to California and I can't believe my parents let me go, but you know, were you thinking, I want to be an actress? I want to be at the beach? No, what? I was thinking, get me out of trouble. Like, get me away from, How, just get okay. me away. And and I always wanted to go to California. I will say that's something okay. that was like in my soul since I was a child. I was like, I'm going to live in California one day. And, and I had totally. gone out on a spring break trip. And I had had this like God moment where I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, this okay. is where I'm supposed okay. to be. And I feel like that was God just laying, you know, 
kind of the looking forward to like, yeah, this is where you're going to have to be to get sober. So I landed in California summer. Don't remember what month, probably beginning of June, maybe because it was just after school. And at that point, I started to have like a little bit of the seed was was planted, right? My parents actually planted that seed, thank God. And I thank them for that. Months, a few months went by. I went out to a bar. There was a girl there that was like just the life of the party. And I I, I don't usually go into all these details, but it it's part of it. Like she walked into the house that we were at before we went out. And I remember she was so just like had this light about her and was so outgoing and bubbly and beautiful. And what I remember thinking in that moment in my like probably drunken stupor was like, I used to be friends with people like that. You know, and I was hanging out with like straight up addicts at this point. And I remember thinking, I used to be friends with people like that. And like she was so like kind of this breath of fresh air. Well, we get to the bar and somebody goes to order a round of drinks and she didn't get a drink. And they said, what are you, an alcoholic? And she's like, yep, full blown. Been in recovery for a year or something. And I was like, whoa. Like, I didn't know anyone young got sober. I honestly didn't know that 24 years ago. You know, I thought maybe you get sober when you're 60 years old or something. And so I called her for help. I called her the next day. I like hunted her down and I said, I, I think, I think I need help. And she got me to a meeting. And oh, that wow. just started this kind of few month phase of me going in and out of the rooms and drinking again and in and out of the rooms, which is one of the most painful places you can possibly be. And I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. You know, I was doing everything in my power to get it and I couldn't get it. And it was actually that girl that I called for the umpteenth time, you know, at God only knows what hour. I was like, you know, wasted and like, I can't, uh," whatever. And she said, I can't talk to you right now. My brother just committed suicide. And that was a moment. That was a moment that I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm such a burden to everybody. I can't get sober. I'm killing myself. And I called my parents that night and basically like the gig was up, right? I kind of, I had been, I'm 3,000 miles away from them. So I'm kind of pretending that I'm doing good, you know? Mm -hmm. And I told them, this is the reality of my life. I need help. (laughs) that's not a great feeling when you wake up the next morning and you come to and you remember that you called yourself out, right? Like the gig, it's up. (laughs) I was like, oh, shit, what happened last night, you know? And they were like, all right, let's get you in rehab. And I was like, absolutely not, because I didn't think I was that bad. You know, it's so crazy what this disease tells us. And so I, I kind of made a deal with them and I said, listen, I'll go to a meeting every single day. And cause it was November. So they were like, go to rehab. We won't see you for Christmas. We'll celebrate it later. And I was like, excuse me. Like I have a big, huge Irish Catholic family of like 40 people. I'm not going to not be home for Christmas, you know? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> so I kind of cut a deal and said, you know, if I, I'll go to a meeting every day, I'll try to get sober. I'll do everything I can. If I don't stay sober, I will go to rehab. And I went home three weeks later at Christmas and I relapsed at home, which is just, I mean, it destroys a family. You know, it just, I, I, it's hard enough being an addict and an alcoholic, but I cannot fathom being the parent of an addict or alcoholic. I just can't. And I felt like I disappointed them and the disgrace in their eyes. I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. So I decided to go back to California and end my life. That's where I was at that point because I couldn't get so. And that was that catatonic 
you know, kind of like almost like rocking in a chair, just staring blankly at a wall. How do I get a gun so I can kill myself? How do I get a gun so I can kill myself? Like really thinking, I know this person has a gun in their house. Like just, that was the only thought because that was the only solution. And a friend of mine showed up on my doorstep who, looking back, it's so funny because I've caught back up with him and ran into him at a meeting 20 years into both of our sobrieties. At the time, Devin was four months sober off of heroin. He was just this punk kid off the boardwalk that was newly sober. And he showed up and he tried to get, you know, he just tried to talk to me. And um, I remember him saying, you you know, you got to pray. And I said, I can't. And he said, you got to get to a meeting. And I said, not possible. You know, I was just catatonic. And he said, well, then I'm going to pray for you. And I remember he held my hand and he prayed over me and he prayed for me. And there was just that little opening that I feel like cracked something open for me to start to recommit one more, one last time to that path. One last time. Yeah. So how did you then get yourself to a meeting? Did he drive you? I don't even remember. I don't even remember. You know, somehow I got to a meeting and then got to a meeting every single day and talk about a full surrender. Like I cannot, every single thing that I'm trying to do on my own isn't working. And I think that full surrender is following every single direction, right? Come to coffee with us after the meeting. Well, I don't want to, but I will. You know, read this literature. I don't want to, but I will. Like every single direction I just followed. And, you know, it was, there was no other option. And I really believed at the time that I was going to be in a rocking chair for the rest of my life. Like that was the image I had in my head. I'm like, okay, I am 21 years old. And 25 years ago, not that many people got sober young, right? Like not like it is now. I mean, there were a lot of people in Southern California that were sober and young, but not like it is now. And I just thought this is, this is my life. Like this is the only it's either end my life or sign myself up and do the sobriety thing and my life is over, you know? Yeah. I mean, as any addict or alcoholic will tell you, it's like, no, that was literally the moment you were born, <laughs> like reborn, right? And I look back on that year, that first year, because I think people are always like, well, what did you do? And I always ask that question. When I'm curious and I need help, I'm like, well, what did you do, you know? And what I did was I kept a very simple job, Right. If I wasn't at work or I wasn't asleep, I was at a meeting or I was with people in recovery. I couldn't be by myself for an hour or I I just felt insane, right? I felt crazy. And there was this huge risk that my thinking was going to lead me back to drugs and alcohol. So I just had to totally surround myself. And that was the first year of my recovery. But, you know, I always compare it to people that don't understand the world of recovery. I'm like, well, think about cancer patients like that have knocked on death's door. And if they were all in the same building recovering together, think about the bond that that would build, you know? And that's kind of what we get. It's like the relationships that you build are so fast and so deep. And you've also mostly walked away from your total previous life and relationships if you're smart. So you grab a hold and you know, I was in Southern California where we were snowboarding and surfing and sailing and rock climbing and like doing all these, going to concerts and 
you get a whole bunch of young, crazy AF people together that love to live so life fun. on the edge that are sober. And I'm like, this is amazing. It's so fun. It's and so they're so fun. funny. Yeah. yeah. Like the funniest people I've ever met are yes. in recovery. Again, I heard, I've heard you say you were just like ensconced in recovery and yeah. sobriety that first year and with the people. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. You said you had a, a simple job. What was your job that year? I was a waitress at like a breakfast place, you know, okay. um, just like, okay. and, and I remember in very, very early sobriety because your brain is just so stupid. I remember going to an interview at a bar because I bartended for years and somebody in recovery was like, mm, not a great idea. And I'm like, well, right. why not? Like, I don't get it. I'm not going to drink, you know? Thank God I didn't take that job. And I had the kind of the, the counsel of people in recovery guiding me. And I was like, okay. After a while, I was like, you're right. I should probably just make a little less money and take this, you know, basic job that's like morning. It was like breakfast and lunch. And so I did that. And then I ended up working a little bit part-time at my friend's surf shop who he was like 30 years in sobriety and, you know, yeah. So how did you then get into fitness? So you're 21, you're working at a diner. How do you get into fitness? Yeah. So my background had always been, you know, as an athlete, I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. Like ever since I can remember, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And I had the brains and I had the, all the things until I imploded it. Right. And so I have been fascinated with the human body, with anatomy and kinesiology and all the things. And I took a lot of those classes in high school. Like I took college classes in high school and stuff like that. So that was kind of what I was going back to. But there's a whole hell of a lot of shame, you know, around like I threw my life away and I'm back at square one and I am a waitress, right? Like I was supposed to be a doctor. What happened here? So I was trying to figure it out, right? I was trying to figure it out. And I think the biggest gift that recovery gave me is to listen to that voice, you know, listen to that still small voice. I always say, listen to the whisper. And I have always been super intuitive, even just as a young child. I think I was really like tuned in to just something. And I took a job selling advertising for a local newspaper. So I was going in and out in La Jolla, California, which is like the most beautiful place on planet Earth. I was walking in and out of businesses all day long. Like that was my job. And I walked into a Pilates studio. And this was before Pilates was Pilates. Like people didn't really know what Pilates was back then. And I walked in and there was just a knowing in my soul that I was like, I'm supposed to do this. And I didn't have, I, I didn't know what it was. I had no even rational thought of what this was. I was working so much and barely making any money. So I had no time and no money. And I think this laid the groundwork for all my success that has come. Listening to that calling, right? to do something where every rational thought in your head is like, this doesn't make sense. You don't have the time. You don't have the money. I remember calling my brother that night. I remember walking through the grocery store, talking to my brother. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, you're going to do what? And he's like, you haven't even taken a class. You don't even know. Like, what? And I was like, I know. I know this makes no sense, but I'm going to do this thing. And I figured it out, you know, and I have done that a thousand times since in my professional life. And it has always, you know, just been the most miraculous path ever. So I ended up becoming a Pilates instructor. I finally rationalized it to myself that I was like, I could make more money doing this in less time and then go back and pursue med school. 
Like that was my okay. thought. I'll go back to school okay. and I'll go back through and I'll, you know, apply to med school. And this is just something I, I can support myself through the process. And it became my career for 17 years. Like never yeah. would have thought that. So I moved back east a few years sober, opened up my own studio, you know, wellness studio, Pilates studio, had lots of employees and, you know, different modalities that we offered. And it was, it was a beautiful thing because as much as I love the human body and Pilates really allowed me to use, you know, do that, it also stoked my entrepreneurial fire. And I've, you know, I was selling candy to the neighborhood kids when I was six years old for a profit. You know, like I, I, my wheels are always turning in the entrepreneurial world. So again, I feel like my head was like, and society, we don't realize how much society puts on us. Like, you're supposed to be a doctor. This is what you love. You can make a lot of money. This is respectful. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And having a Pilates studio would never, I would never think that that's where I would have ended up. But it was wildly successful and it okay. brought every single interest, love, and gift that I had to the table. You know? What was the name of your studio? I'm it was curious. Pilates of Charleston. Because I Pilates thought, it, yeah, I, I named it that. Well, the studio I worked out in, in La Jolla was Pilates of La Jolla. And my thought was if I franchise it, you know, we can just name it for whatever city we go into. So yeah. Did you ultimately sell your studio? How did you? Okay, I sold, you sold it. Yeah. I sold it many years in. Yeah. Because okay. I had okay. also, I had built and expanded and moved locations and gotten bigger and done all these things that I was like, there's nothing else here for me. And that's kind of my blessing and curse of my personality too. It's like, if I can't grow, if I can't evolve, if I can't tackle something new, I get really bored really quick. And so I was just like, and I had had kids. So like I had two little babies at the time and I was like, there's just nothing more I can do with this business, you know? So I decided to sell it at that point. So you sold, but you didn't step away from fitness, obviously. You ended up working with Beachbody. Yeah, which was crazy. Something I never thought I would do ever, ever in a million yeah. years, ever. And then what does it mean to become the top coach in Beachbody? What does that mean? It means that there's really two main components. One is you're you're able to become develop leaders, right? And okay. I'm really good at teaching other people how to build businesses because okay. I have an entrepreneurial background. I've built a lot of businesses, you know? But I think the reason I'm able to teach people how to build businesses is because yeah, there's business strategy, which is wildly important. But we all know it's, and Tony Robbins always says, I think it's like 80% mindset, 20% strategy, right? So everybody can have this strategy, but if you're not leading with 80% mindset to allow entrepreneurs to push through the hard days, to break through limiting beliefs, to create a vision for their life, to reverse engineer goals, like all that inside stuff, then it's why most small businesses fail, right? They're not even thinking about that stuff. So I really led with personal growth. Like I remember even the CEO, I mean, we're talking about a billion dollar business. Like he would call me and be like, how are you, like, what is happening over there? Like, how are you doing this? And I'm like, well, I lead with mindset, right? I lead with connection and relationship and community and I breathe belief. And I'm not just teaching the business I'm teaching all of the other stuff that actually allows people to build businesses. So I think that's one of my superpowers is like, I love numbers. I love, I'm very analytical, 
but I equally like love the inside work, you know, and you need both to succeed in anything. I think you absolutely need both. Along the way with your Beachbody success, I've heard you say that, and you, you mentioned this earlier, your ideas around failure and that there's no failure. It's only just regretting what you didn't, what you didn't give your all to, because you must've had times when you didn't hit your numbers. And I I wish I, I would have hired you when I owned my studio because I recently sold and I'm having some regret around it. And I think it's because I didn't do, like I've learned more in my current position about like follow-up calls and like what you just said, all the things you just said, reverse engineering goals. I I didn't do any of that. I was an instructor who, and and I'm like, God, I wish I I would have hired her before. Talk about your, your strategy and your mindset around like failure and how to look at failure as a not a negative component of life? Well, I think there's two parts of it. And I think the thing that we hear if we are immersed in kind of the personal growth world, we hear it a lot, right? There is no such thing as failure. It's all a learning experience. Like, you know, when we say like, when people are like, oh, I, I wasn't successful and I tried everything. I'm like, did you try everything or did you try like three things? Because three things is not everything. So when you are a massive action taker and you and you go quick, which is what I do, it's like, oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. Getting closer. That didn't work. That didn't work. Getting a little closer. That didn't work. You're just like, da 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 And so I think the biggest thing that is people try one or two things and they don't experience success, so they consider it a failure. And I'm like, every single thing I've ever done has taught me right? I had a cold press juice company in between my Pilates studio and coaching with Beachbody. And I invested over $100,000. I borrowed against my house. I worked my ass off for three years. I built the brand. It was wildly successful in a whole lot of ways. And I actually made a decision to walk away from it just because it was killing my soul. And I look back on that and, you know, I remember one time my mom saying like, oh, that was for nothing, like a couple hundred grand and three years of your life down the tubes. And I was like, huh? And I was literally like, that was like the greatest gift I could have ever received because I never would have been able to do, I, never, there's no chance in hell I would have built a seven-figure coaching business had I not had that exact business and exact experience and exact everything. There's no way. Like I think from the outside in, it's like, don't you wish you didn't do that cold press juice company and you just started coaching? I'm like, well, then I'd probably be making like $20,000 a year. Wow. Okay. You just like blew my mind. And I feel like it's faded that we're speaking right now Yes, because that is like kind of how I felt about my studio. It was the most amazing, beautiful brand. People still talk about it. It was a Phoenix was our logo and it there was like a brand and an identity around it. If you were a member and I'm so proud of that. Yes. And how I can look at this is what I learned and I know what I didn't do, I can do that now yes. with the podcast and with Cycle Bar. Yes. And I love that you shared that you had a business for three years that maybe by others' estimation would not have been as wildly successful as this Pilates studio or the Beach Body. Yeah. Because that just made me yeah. feel, and probably some of our listeners, a bazillion times better. Because yes. obviously we're looking at money. And I actually did, we did okay. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't a loss. But I love that you shared that because that just helped me so much. That's such a great way to look at it. If you really dig into, and I am obsessive about like biographies and, you know, documentaries and stuff. If you look at the biggest business like tycoons or the most successful people, 
they are like almost constantly folding certain companies. They've got so many companies that they're like, just invested 3.5 million or billion into that. Uh, total failure. We got to close the doors on that one. Run with this one. Like it's never all working. We just think it's all working for them magically. And it never is. I mean, you could, even with Beachbody, you know, being a billion dollar company, I remember the CEO was like, you know, this thing failed and then 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 this thing failed. It's like failure is the path. Failure is the path to success. Successful people have just failed more. We have failed more. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that. And But here's the piece you were talking about, and this is what I was going to say. That's kind of, we hear that, what I just talked about a lot, I think, if you're listening to the right thought leaders. But this was a huge aha that I had. So one of my top coaches that I've mentored to, you know, she's had a crazy success. She asked me one time a few years back, she was like, Moira, I don't understand. And I'm like, what? And she said, you're the only person I have ever known in my life that cannot hit your goals and not skip a freaking beat and you just keep going. And I was like, that's interesting. And I was like, I wonder why that is. Like, what, what is that that allows me to keep going? Because I'm like such a studier of like human behavior so I can help people. And what I realized was this. I will work my like tail off. I mean, there's few people that could probably outwork me. And I don't say that from an egotistical standpoint because it's not always the healthiest thing in the world. But I will work every moment. If I have a goal, right, that I've set for myself, I am working, I am staying up late, I am getting up early, I am masterminding and strategizing every single stop I can possibly pull out. I am doing literally everything in my power, everything I can think of to hit that goal. And if I can't hit that goal, I'm like, oh, well, there's nothing else I could have done. Like there's nothing else I could have done. Where what I realize is we are so defeated by failure, by not hitting a goal because of the guilt and shame that is attached to not giving it our all. People feel like shit when they don't hit a goal because they didn't do the freaking work. When you do all the work, there isn't a moment of regret. There's not a moment of guilt. There's not a moment of shame. You just keep going. You don't skip a beat. I gave it everything I got. I couldn't have done anything else. I couldn't have done anything else. And that is the difference. I love that idea. But I got to ask you, you have kids. How do you do it all? And I don't even have kids. I have a pug and he's crazy, but still he's yeah. not that much work. So I'm like, how do I build numbers here? Plus work on my social media content. How do you literally do all the things, yeah. but you're a mom and a podcaster and a writer. How are you doing this? So you got to get really good at time management and it's such an unglamorous yeah. thing, you know, <laughs> but I had to become like a time ninja and I had no skill set in this area whatsoever, like eight years ago. A like time ninja. I, had no I love clue. that. I, I was like, I just was overwhelmed, like in near tears every day because I was overworking myself. I had to, and I do have a process that I teach. It's like a three-step time management process. It's like, get it down on paper. I do it every single day. There's a million sheets of paper floating around that like have my time chunks on them. So it's like, this is like all the things I got to do for my brand. This is all the things I got to do for body. This is all the personal stuff I got to do for the kids. So I like divide it into hats and I'm giving you the real quick version. I divide it into hats. 
Then I look at my day. This is when I'm a coach. This is when I'm a podcaster. This is when I'm a mom, right? And then I look at the list and I'm like, what's the most important thing that needs to get done? Say I'm like a coach from nine to 12 and that's my time block. And I've got 18 things on the list that are under that category. Because when I say write it all down, I'm saying like every single teeny tiny thing from big to small. And I look at and I number it. I prioritize it. This is the first. This is the second most important thing. This is the third. This is the fourth. This is the fifth. And then I look at that time block and I'm like, all right, 9 to 9.30, I'm doing this. 9.30 to 10, I'm doing this. 10 to 10.15, I'm doing this. 10.15 to 10.30. And what that makes me do is not waste my time. What that makes me do is not scroll Instagram or unload the dishwasher or pick up the phone because a girlfriend's calling. Like, no way, no how. I I have all this stuff I got to do. But what it also allows me to do is to feel really freaking good about putting my phone down when it's time for me to be a mom. Because again, I have worked so smart and so efficiently and I've gotten so much shit done that... I feel good about stepping away from work. It doesn't feel good to put your phone away and spend time with your kids when you have wasted all day long and you haven't gotten crap done. And now you've got that pull of like, I've got to return this message. I've got to do this thing, but my kids are pulling at my arms, but I got to do this. And you just are living in this frustration and this anxiety. When I am doing something, when I am on a podcast, I am on a podcast. When I am with my kids, I'm with my kids. When I am coaching a client, I am coaching a client because I have things slotted out that I don't have to be interrupted by DMs when I'm doing all those other things because I'm going to respond to my DMs at a certain time. I love that, a time ninja. And speaking of being a time ninja, I know your time is short. <laughs> I, have, I have one last question that yes. I have to ask yes. you. Though. I have way more, but I at least want to ask you about this. You have also developed, this is the coolest thing. I'm going to order it today. Your journal, your proof of life journal. I am so into the idea of neuroscience and leveraging neuroplasticity of our brains and rewiring our brains for for whatever. And you've spoken about... (laughs) I want I mean, it. It's I'm with, getting it. It's like within arm's length of me. It's not within arm's length of me because I wanted to show it on the podcast. It's literally next to me 24-7. Yeah. So because you spoke about losing confidence when we're addicts because the shame of waking up daily and making a promise to ourselves, and this is a pain I think only an addict knows the exquisite pain of waking up and saying, I will not do dope today. I will not drink today. I will not shoot heroin today. And you do it anyways. It's a betrayal of self at a deep level daily, and it destroys our confidence. And you have spoken about this way that you've developed over these years of a morning process of writing things down that developed this journal that you call the proof of life, which is so cool. Can you talk about your journal? Yeah. So it is a process that I was organically doing for myself for lots of years, right? And then I started to teach it to women I was mentoring. And so they would start to do it. And so it wasn't just that it radically changed my life. I saw it radically. I mean, from despair to the top of the mountain, change people's lives, like in regards to business success and, you know, freedom in their body, freedom and just joy, all of it. And it really came back to all of this. And so I, that's why I am successful in a lot of things because I'm a lot, I'm able to take really complicated information and strip it down and make it so simple that it's doable. Right. And so this is a kind of a combination of so many things, right? You're writing out your vision, which we need to have that at the forefront of our mind every day. So the practice is you're you're reading your vision, 
you're writing out five ways that like proof is, you know, what we say, proof that life is happening for you, right? Like what are the miracles? What are the God winks? What are the things that happen? What are, but it has to be in that day. We're not just saying like, I'm grateful for my house. You know, it's like what happened yesterday? Or if you do it at night, what happened today? What are five things? Because our brains, and this is a whole nother probably show, but our brains are designed to keep us safe. Our brains are designed to look out for danger. Our brains are designed to go like, oh, shitty comment on your Instagram. She's a hater. Like we're looking. Our brains are literally on alert to look for threats all day. So the things that we're going to remember is all the bad stuff. It's all the bad stuff. We will not literally assimilate in our brain and retain the good. So no wonder so many people are depressed, right? So we have to condition our mind and start to create, like you said, it's neuroplasticity, right? Lay down new wiring that is literally proof that our life's pretty freaking good, that we are winning in a lot of ways, that there are so many gifts every single day. And so you're reading that vision, so your eyes on the prize, you can remember what you're building and why. You're writing down five proofs, then you're asking yourself, what are the three most important things I need to do today, right? That's your time hack process. What are, there's not 28 things you need to do today. There's probably three main things that are going to actually move the needle in your life and in your business. Prioritize those. What are the three most important things? And then these are huge. What am I excited about? Because that question reframes our to-do list, mm. right? I can so easily be like, oh, I got to do a podcast at 8.30 and then I got to go to a meeting at 10 and then another podcast at 11.30 and then I got to pick up my kids and then I got, I got to, I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to, I get to. I mean, literally when I say, what am I excited about today? I'm like, oh, I get to interview Chris Lee at 8.30. I get to hop on your podcast at 11.30. I get to spend time with my kids this afternoon. I get to. So what am I excited about? And then the last one is what am I proud of myself for? because we don't flex that muscle enough. And that is a muscle and a wiring in our brain that we really need to flex on a daily basis to change how we feel about ourselves. Because when we step into more confidence, when we can see the proof and we can tell ourselves we're proud of ourselves for something every freaking day, that's how you reshape your life. That's how you reshape your confidence. Wow. I'm going to order your journal. Where can everybody else order your journal and connect with you and find you because they're going to want you. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say it's complicated and simple at the same time. So everything is Moira Kasaba. So M-O-I-R-A-K-U-C-A-B-A. It's just not easy to spell. But Instagram, TikTok, website, you know, YouTube, it's all the same. And then books are on Amazon. So I have a planner and the journal and they're all on Amazon. You can just search my name and they'll pop right up. I cannot thank you enough for your time. I feel super inspired. I know all of my listeners are going to feel super inspired. And again, I feel like it was almost like divine too that we connected because it was just a year ago today that I sold my business and the guy like ran it into the ground. So the brand doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. That happened to my juice company too. It imploded. It imploded as soon as I sold it. I'm like, dude, I handed you this community on a silver platter, but whatever. Another conversation for another day. So connecting with you just has like for me personally, re-inspired me and made me feel like so much better about everything. So thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, girl. Thanks for having me.